Section 10 of the Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 10. Sweden. History of Sweden from 1060 to 1250 is one of transition, of long and severe internal religious and territorial conflicts. Gradually, out of a rather homogeneous and free peasant population, there evolved a class of land-owing nobles and influential families, who more and more got the wealth and political power into their own hands. Historical material for a knowledge of this period is unfortunately very limited. From remote times, petty kings were elected by the people, but until late do we find a considerable number of important rulers with extensive dominions. One peculiar point is that Sweden solely evolved her own nobility and not import them ready-made in the form of Norman or Teutonic immigrants. She did not draw from the taproots of the great royal strains on the continent. This may be the reason why Sweden was slowly emerging from small separate kingdoms into a large united government. The extent of the territory and difficulty in communication usually held to be the causes of this delay towards a wide monarchical sway, but we may advance with equal right this purely biological cause. It is a question whether such geographical facts as extent of territory and natural difficulty of communication have much to do with limiting a regal dominion. Perhaps but when one thinks of the work of the Asiatic conquerors of Charlemagne and the vast sway of the Incas, one is at least entitled to doubts. In fact, all Scandinavia, including Denmark, Norway and Sweden, was very successfully managed by the great queen Margaret, 1375-1412. There are in addition a few other notable figures from the 13th to the 15th centuries in Sweden, the noblemen of Englebrecht and the Struis, but these were not members of royal families, so their state has not properly come within the scope of this work. A hasty inspection indicates that on further study evidence would be fond of a rather high general level character and intelligence on the part of the early Swedish people. For about a hundred years after the time of Margaret, Sweden was more or less under Danish rule and constantly struggling to free herself from the hated yoke. At times she seemed to succeed, but the independence was only temporary. There were no great kings in Denmark during this era, nor were they, with the exception of Eric, distinctly weak. If the Danish kings had been, frankly, of one type or the other, the question of separate independence for Sweden might have been definitely decided before it actually was. It turned out to be not so much the weakness of the Danish kings as the genius of a single Swedish nobleman, Gustavus Vasa, that gave political independence to his country. This nobleman was raised to the sovereign power in 1523, and from that time monarchical Sweden began as a united independent nation. For them, until the assassination of Gustavus III in 1792, there is a very clear course to Swedish history the ups and downs of which make excellent material for collecting and analysing after histriometric method. The annals of this country are unlike Denmark's in two important ways. First, there were many members of the royal family with rare mental gifts, in fact royal figures of the greatest eminence. And second, there was a time when Sweden played a very important role in European political history, something Denmark never did. The whole period of 1525 to 1792 is easily divided into two sub-periods, an age of growth and an age of decline, the beginning of the downward tendency being initiated by the mad ambition of Charles XII, 1697 to 1718. In a broad way, the two sub-periods outline the story, 
that there are many counter tendencies which show the personal influence by their sharp reversals in the general state of affairs as the great leaders come and go. The man who freed the Swedes and gave them a permanently separate national history was not of royal birth. His family connections were, however, high, being among the leading nobility. When Gustavus Vasa was finally elected king of Sweden, that country had, what is really rare in most monarchies, except the Germanic, a truly native sovereign, that is, a sovereign whose maternal and paternal ancestry are both ground and land over which he rules. Gustavus Vasa must unquestionably be considered a very marked personality. He had all the traits essential to a nation's liberator. The magnetic enthusiasm, the untiring energy, and the single-minded devotion to a patriotic ideal. Even such faults as a passionate temper and tyrannical behavior furthered the success of his career. The most important work which the first Vassar accomplished appears, however, not to have been the mere delivery of his native land, for this might have been temporary, but rather the internal improvement which occupied his long reign. Gustavus Vassar was, says Bain, the greatest constructive statesman of a dynasty of empire makers. The whole burden of government weighed exclusively on the shoulders of the new king, a young man of seven and twenty. He had to see to everything personally and act on information which he could trust no one to collect but himself. Half his time was taken up in travelling from one end of the kingdom to the other and doing purely clerical work for the want of competent assistance. Gustavus was, in very deed, not merely Sweden's king, but Sweden's most overworked servant. His officers did literally nothing without first consulting him, and his care extended to everything, from the building of a smithy to the construction of a fleet, from the translation of the scriptures to the reformation of the church. Under his personal direction, there was first the establishment of a vastly more orderly and peaceful state of affairs than had extended before. The religious ferments, so universal at that time, were not without their expression in Sweden, he had taken the form of peasant rising. These called for and received a vigorous repression. The next important requirement was to restore the exhausted executor, not an easy task to accomplish in a country so long ill-managed by foreign overlords. It was a fatiguing uphill task, but towards the close of the reign the public wealth was well increased, and the taxes were rendered less burdensome. Even more than in these ways, the reign is famous as initiating the commercial industrial progress of Sweden especially agricultural and mining developments, which from this time being to be very important. A turn in affairs promptly ensured and precipitated Sweden into a period of decline as soon as Gustavus Vasa died. Eric, who succeeded his father, had many of the brilliant mental gifts of the family, but was lacking in practical wisdom and common sense, so that as a sovereign he was utterly incompetent. He had no ability to command this situation. Eric was an orator, poet, musician and painter. But these gifts were not needed. His nature was cruel, suspicious, changeable, and untrustworthy, and very soon he showed the signs of that insanity which attacked a considerable number of the brilliant family of Vassa. Eric XIV was undoubtedly insane at times. During the greater part of the year 1567, he became so deranged that a committee of senators had to be appointed to govern the kingdom. His conduct at best was unsupportable either to his own family or to his subjects, and the result that he was deposed in 1568 by his two brothers, John and Charles, backed by a popular movement. The whole reign of Eric was a dark one. The rebellions and disorder in the court and government were attended by extravagant depletion of the public revenue, which brought general discontent and misfortune to the masses. During the reign of John III shows the same general disorder. Popular discontent and extravagance on the part of the crown 
the cessation of that material progress in industry and agriculture which made the period of the first Vassa so glorious. John III resembled his brother Eric the Fourteenth very closely. His mind was gifted, but chiefly in a theoretical or bookish way. He was an expert linguist and considered very learned, especially in religion. Like Eric, his mind was unstable and his character described as violent, cruel, and strong. It is difficult to grade such kings as Eric the Fourteenth and John the Third, and moreover, the latter has been treated by historians as a partisan spirit. Supreme of the Catholic reaction has probably prejudiced the Swedes against John, but we can be reasonably sure that neither of these two men, being among the great kings of history, or in a class with Gustavus Vasa or Gustavus Adolphus the Great, we also know that Sweden made no important progress during their rule. The reign of Eric was distinctly weak, and considered as a monarch, he cannot be classed as more than mediocre. The reign of John, though internally unsatisfactory, contains important territorial conquests on the opposite shores of the Baltic that on the whole its totality is doubtful during the brief reign of the weak sigismund religious disturbances and unsettled conditions continued for a few years accompanied by a series of changes which make a page of reading not by any means peculiar to itself except in the names of the actors and the details of the events time and again we find disorganization and decline under a weak monarch a personal struggle with some close relative usually a brother or uncle, and then a survival of the fittest, the nation again is seen to emerge from the discord and travel along the upward road. John had ousted Eric, and Eric was doubtless the more worthy of the two, but John was himself unfit, and the same was true of Sigismund, his son and successor. On the contrary, the Duke Charles was, of all the sons of the first Gustavus, the one to inherit not only the genius, but also the rugged practical wisdom of his father, after five years' struggle, accentuated by religious bitterness, Charles came off the victor, and Sigismund was formally deposed. The influence of Charles IX was immediately beneficial. Order was again established after thirty years of disruption, and once again the whole of progress moved in those matters relating so directly to the welfare of the nation as a whole. He laboured earnestly to improve the judicial system of Sweden, which had as yet no code. He reorganized local administration and the levying of taxes. He favored commerce industry with all his power. All writers agree in extolling the success of the brief but important reign of Charles IX. As a ruler, he is a link between his great father and his still greater son. He consolidated the work of Gustavus Vasa, the creation of a great Protestant state. He prepared the way for the creation of the Protestant empire of Gustavus Adolphus. Swedish historians have been excusably indulgent to the father of their greatest ruler. His speedily Charles was cruel, ungenerous, and vindictive. Yet it is impossible not to respect a man who seems, at all hazards, strenuously to have endeavoured to do his duty as he understood it, during the most difficult of periods, a period of religious and political transition, and who, despite his fanaticism, possessed many of the qualities of a wise and courageous statesman. The nobility whom he depressed and persecuted were no doubt justified in regarding him as a tyrant, but the Swedish people frankly trusted and cheerfully obeyed a monarch under whose protection they felt happy and secure, and who loved his country in his own rough way above all else. This was the commencement of Sweden's famous and continuous rise to a position of importance in the world's politics. It began with the first years of the 17th century and coincided in point of time with that century almost exactly. The growth was remarkably uniform, and there have been but few examples in these tables of European history of any national progress extending a full country without some serious setbacks.
Turkey in the 14th and again in the 15th centuries, and England in the 18th, are examples of such long and steady advance. Here in Sweden, there were two periods when it was rather difficult to say that the real welfare of the country was enhanced. The outward glory of Charles X's reign, 1654-1660, may have cost too great a price, and the burden on the lower classes in this and succeeding period needs to be taken into account. But we can safely say that there was no time of true retrogression in Sweden during the 17th century, or at least until 1697. The great names of Charles IX, Gustavus Adolphus, the minister, Oxenstierna, Christina, Charles X, Charles XI, loom large in European history. The impulse from six able rulers falling in sequence ought to be considerable if my thesis be correct, and so it actually was, or at least the six are correlated to a great epoch. Sweden was not only raised to a diplomatic power of the first rank, but a commercial industrial progress was no less noteworthy. A circuit inspection brings out the fact that her two greatest gains were made under the leadership of the two, of all the six, who would surely be given the highest rating, namely Gustavus Adolphus and the minister Ozenstjerna. The great work of Gustavus Adolphus as a champion of Protestantism is well known, but there are certain other facts in regard to his life which are sometimes overlooked, facts which make it perfectly clear that man was a born genius, and that he was a moulder of circumstances and not their creature. First, he should recall his precocity. He was only 18 when he ascended the throne, and he already, at 16, distinguished himself in war against the Danes as the actual leader of a successful army. When we should remember the great difficulties with which he was beset from the commencement of his reign, with a small army and extended treasury, Gustavus came upon the throne at a time when his country was simultaneously at war with Russia, Poland, and Denmark, and when it seemed as if the Swedish nation would break to pieces in the hands of united enemies. Yet Gustavus not only gave them defeat, but actually gained territory at the close of these wars. Afterwards he had Tilly and Wallenstein, both consummate generals, as opponents, and fought against great odds when he united the shattered Protestant army and led it against the great house of Austria. Another direct proof of the genius of Gustavus Adolphus is that he introduced entire changes in the methods of warfare. He discovered a more efficient system than that in vogue before his time. These changes made possible the rapidity of movement and assault which characterized his victories. At that time, the greatest reliance was placed in large, unwieldy masses of cavalry. These Gustavus arranged in small, rapidly moving detachments. At the same time, he separated the battalions of infantry at a greater distance from each other, so as to give room for the play of the smaller units. The system of Gustavus was soon adopted by all the European countries and produced a revolution in the art of warfare. Gustavus also introduced reforms in the artillery, using lighter guns. He is said to have first established in modern Europe the true principles of cavalry tactics. The occupation of warfare did not by any means exhaust the energies of the Lion of the North, or prevent, as was often the case with other monarchs, needful development of the country internally. The growth of old towns and the foundation of new ones, the increase of educational facilities, of means of transportation, and the general improvement in the administration of justice were all remarkable. Much territory had been added, and Sweden had risen in a period of twenty years to a position of real grandeur among the nations of Europe. Gustavus Adolphus perished on the field of Lutzen in 1632, when only thirty-eight years of age, what he might have accomplished had his life been spared. During the minority of Christina, there were twelve years of strength 
though the nation had no royal leader. At the head of affairs was the eminent Oxenstierna, who had been valuable to Sweden in the reign of Gustavus Adolphus. The nation continued to play, in general, a successful role in the Thirty Years' War, and the internal conditions remained prosperous. That the good results really depended upon this one man appears evident enough. Thus Bain, in describing the administration of Oxenstierna during the minority of Christina, says, During his absence in Germany, the policy of the other regents had been vacillating to the verge of cowardice. But on his return, all branches of the administration awoke to new life. Oxenstierna always presided at the frequent meetings of the Rad. His strong hand and watchful eye influenced every branch of the administration, and anything like slackness, disorder, or venality was impossible during his sway. Many useful reforms, too, were inaugurated. A committee of experienced jurists was appointed to improve and simplify the course of legal procedure. Trade and industry, especially the fabrication of iron and copper wire, were vigorously promoted and flourished exceedingly, so that Sweden held control of the estuaries or the principal rivers of Germany. The regular army was reorganized and raised to 40,000 men, an enormous force for a nation with a population of only 1,500,000, while the fleet in 1640 consisted of no fewer than 40 men of war and 40 galleys with 1,300 guns. Besides the Skardegardsflota, or scary flotilla of 150 galleys for special service among the lords of Sweden and Finland. After Christina became of age, she assumed the chief direction of affairs, and the first portion of her reign was full of glory. In 1645, Sweden extorted from Denmark the humiliating peace of Bromseboro. Henceforth, for the next 25 years, Sweden was justly regarded as the greatest military power in Europe. The peace of Bromseboro was the crowning work and final service of the great Oxenstierna. In 1648, the Peace of Westphalia gave Sweden the Duchies of Bremen, Verden, and Western Pomerania. The last portion of this reign was not so successful. The results of Christina's strange individuality are everywhere to be seen. Though she had great wit, learning, and intellectual acumen, who gives her rather more in nature of brilliancy of accomplishments than judgment of practical ability, and added to this, her nature was so erratic, headstrong, and passionate that she was not at all suited to be a successful ruler. Christina began her reign promisingly and encouraged trade, manufacturers, industries, and also education, science, and scholarship. But her eccentricities increased, and her attachments to unworthy favourites and the general extravagance and recklessness of her conduct brought about a very demoralised state of affairs. Christina herself became tired of ruling, and the country tired of having her. The general discontent became more and more marked until her abdication, voluntary as it originally was became absolutely necessary. It is a little difficult to estimate the tendency of Sweden during her ten-year sway. The early part of it was strong, made notable by the treaties of 1645 and 1648, and contained many inward marks of growth. The last part was clearly one of disintegration. One of the best decisions which Christina made was to have her father's nephew, Charles of Swebrucken, become her successor. Thus Sweden got another strong king. Aunt Charles X, order and unity were restored. The country maintained the high diplomatic prestige which she had won in former reigns. This monarch was a very able general. His wars with Denmark were successful, and the new territory acquired was extremely important to the future of Scandinavia. It was in that Sweden acquired Scania, Halland, and Blekinge, which together formed the southern tip of the peninsula. The expenses of foreign campaigns under Charles X were very great, and perhaps the wars were not worth the price. But at least they extended the domain and enhanced the national prestige. This monarch died in his thirty-eighth year. 
if he lived, he would probably have benefited the country in many lasting ways, since he seemed to be outgrowing the excessive martial spirit of his youth. Be that it may, it is very clear that his reign exhibits a course of events entirely in keeping with the reputed traits of character of this ambitious and warlike sovereign. Charles XI, his son and successor, being only four years old, a regency was appointed, composed of various mediocre characters, and the government sank into an extremely weak state. The finances were very badly managed, Sweden became a mercenary of France, and there was a sudden drop in political status. Trade industry, however, remained in a good condition, so that the total effect of the regency was not as harmful as might be expected. The period covered twelve years until Charles XI was considered to have reached his majority in 1672. He was then but seventeen. His education had been entirely neglected, and, at first, he took no interest in affairs of state, which continued for the first few years in the same bad condition, and the foreign wars were unsuccessful. These years, 1672 to 1679, cover about the first third of the reign of Charles XI, which portion was weak from every standpoint, but the remaining and more important part was correspondingly strong. By a vigorous and even tyrannical method of reform, which unjustly injured a few, he had benefited the nation as a whole. Charles brought about a restitution of financial strength, and so we find Sweden under this rude but vigorous monarch, and again advancing not only in finances, but also in agriculture, commerce, and manufacturers, especially cloth and silk. Reforms in the army and navy strengthened the national defence, making the major portion of the reign of Charles XI a time of peace and prosperity. Another minority of less than a year's duration must be mentioned just before the famous reign of Charles XII. The tendency is not clearly marked, but it appears to be, on the whole, a successful regency. Giger states that the government was weakened by a united regency, that there were disturbances of general discontent, but on the other hand, financial management remained good. Bain, in his History of Charles XII, thus comments upon the regency, it is worth quoting in full because, picturing a considerable number of well-disposed gentlemen acting in a sensible manner for the general welfare of their country, it calls to mind one similar occurrence in Denmark and the comparative rarity of this phenomena in any country during this age. The members of this regency, if not exactly great statesmen, were yet at any rate practical, hard-headed politicians who had not served under such a master as Charles XI in vain and during the seven months that they held sway, no blunders were made and no national interests were injured, which, considering the difficulties that confronted them at home and abroad, is saying a good deal. But all the work on construction which Sweden made in the last year of Charles XI was shattered to the ground by the career of one of the most extraordinary personalities of modern times, Charles XII, who showed what genius can do when ambition is madness and valour is ferocity. It is not necessary to follow this monarch in his great war, the audacity which made all Europe gasp, or to go into details regarding the new condition of Sweden, it is enough to state that his policy brought disaster to his country, and the finances were exhausted, trade and industry declined, and Sweden sank to a fourth-rate power. The Swedish Empire was never a homogeneous structure or a cohesive collection of similar racial elements with a natural bias for political unity. There were within its boundaries, besides the native population, Finns, Sissonians, Let's, Laps, Slavs and Germans, who could only be held together by force of arms. Charles directed this force of arms and all his active attention not towards the internal consolidation and management of this unworldly mass, but spent his nation's resources in a full-heartedly attempt to subdue overwhelmingly greater external powers. Intoxicated by his brilliant early successors, Charles would never listen to reasonable terms of peace, 
and the end Sweden lost her lordship over the north. Russia, her ancient enemy, won it. The balance turned in favour of the country that was ruled by the greater man. Peter the Great, the inveterate rival of Charles XII, was as much a developer of Russia internally as he was a conqueror in war. Charles XII, before the end of his mad career, found himself with exhausted resources, opposed not only by the great Tsar, but also by the neighbouring states, Denmark, Prussia, Hanover, Saxony and England. Thus isolated and abandoned, Sweden was obliged to submit to such terms as are directed by her combined opponents. The results of the Great Northern War were a complete loss of the extensive provinces on the east of the Baltic, at the same time internal ruination and deepest humiliation. All this had been brought upon her land so truly before on the pinnacle of pride and power. After the death of Charles, a drastic change took place in the methods of government so that the position and importance of the crown were entirely altered. It came about in the following manner. It so happened that the legitimate heir, Charles' nephew, the young Charles Frederick, Duke of Holstein, was a weak, irresolute person, and also that no other close relative of the deceased monarch could command pretensions of leadership. Charles XII had no direct descendants, he had no brothers, and his two sisters were mediocre or mentally deficient. The elder of these was childless. Younger had but one son, the above-named Duke of Holstein. It was natural that Sweden, after her experience under Charles XII, should have longed for some change, but it is improbable that a former monarchy so very limited in powers could have been forced upon the crown if it had not been for this ancestral paucity of royal material and absence of heirs in the male line. My belief is that, had there been many direct male heirs, some of them would have had the strength to maintain the old despotism. Charles' only surviving sister was elected queen by the Riksdag, but only on the condition that she should surrender the sovereignty to them. This gives us the opportunity to see how well or how ill Sweden could prosper from 1719 to 1771, directed by her own statesmen, and under an extremely democratic form of government. All three of the sovereigns of this era were merely figureheads whose duties consisted of signing such documents as were presented to them. In character and intellect, they were all either mediocre or inferior. For the first twenty years, affairs were very well directed, and the work of restoration went on under firm but cautious control of the Chancellor, Count Arvid ben Hardhorn. This period was fairly characterised by peace and prosperity, in which commerce, and especially iron, copper and lumber industries, made credible advances. This much must be a credit to the Swedish people themselves, or at least to non-royal persons. That this progress depended more upon the Chancellor, Arvid Horn, that upon the general forces seems likely, since the following thirty-one years, which complete the democratic era, are quite the opposite in their tendencies. Peace and prosperity did not satisfy the nation. They must have the glories of war. A party of jingos, called the Hats, came into power in 1738. Horn was compelled to retire, and the new party was not long in bringing on a war with Russia on the most trivial pretext. The state of affairs in Europe and the complications caused by the Austrian succession and the death of the Russian Empress Anne led these ambitious politicians to imagine that a war against their old enemy across the Baltic might give them an easy victory. So far from this tuning out as they expected, delays and mismanagements were such that no attack was made until six months after war had been declared. Then the Russians dealt the first blow, which virtually settled the whole affair. Instead of winning anything, Sweden lost some more territory. Her position was ridiculous. Peace was patched up, and the greater part of Finland was given back to Sweden on condition that a candidate acceptable to Russia, an insignificant cousin of the Russian Empress, should be elected to the throne once made famous by the Vezas. During the reign of this mild and weak puppet, Adolphus Frederick, 1751-1771, 
their conditions grew steadily worse. Internal commotions, the general discontent, alternated with a state of lethargy in which manufacturers declined so that only about half as many persons were so employed in 1770 as in 1754. The so-called age of freedom was not an age of improvement. It was rather an age of license for the nobles. They wheeled all the control away from the fourth estate, bought and sold their political influence, even betrayed their country into the hands of foreigners. Towards the close of the reign, the corruption in Swedish politics became notorious all over Europe. The republican form of government had degenerated into a corrupt oligarchy. Thus, after fifty years, that is, during the activities of fully two mature generations, Sweden had proved itself unfit for democratic self-government. Under practice and experience, instead of improving, she went backwards and was worse at the end than she was at the start. There is every reason for thinking that these wretched conditions would not have developed had Sweden been fortunate in having a statesman at the type of Axel Oxenzerna or Arvid Horn. One sees a considerable number of first-rate statesmen before and after this time. There are several instances which show that Sweden has some ability to progress without royal aid, but everything indicates that this has been due to the chance appearance of isolated and exceptional statesmen. The revival of agriculture, industry and commerce which took place during the years 1771 to 1792 bears out the same view. In this instance, the statesman was also the king, Gustavus III, the brilliant nephew of Frederick the Great and last of a long line of illustrious princes. Out of nineteen periods, there are five deviations from strict parallelism between the grades of sovereign and the conditions. Only two of these are in the form of opposite deviations. The minority of Christina, 1632 to 1644, was very strong through devoid of royal leadership. The great statesman, Oxenstierna, was at the head of affairs. In a similar way, Arvid Horn appears responsible for the progressive conditions during the first part of the reign of the puppet king, Frederick I. The minority of Charles XI, 1660-1672, and the seven-month regency for Charles XII were in some way successful, and so far, as they were so, the force of inertia seems to be the cause. Motion once well started remains in motion. Aside from these comparatively unimportant instances of departure, the kings themselves seem to be the entire story in Sweden. Beginning of the great movement of territorial expansion, the rise and fall, the minor fluctuations within the major wave, the crash from the Great Northern War under the half-mad Charles, and the reconstruction at their close under Gustavus III, all mirror the remarkable personalities of the monarchs of Sweden. The eccentricities, the absurdities, and the weaknesses of some, but above all the extraordinary energy and the idolized creative genius of others, whose prime moves in international events brought a poor and backward country into a nation of the first rank, for a time unrivaled in the continent of Europe. End of section 10